are learning to blaze a different trail. That's what we've been thinking about in this series. And we've been thinking the last few weeks about prayer. And it's interesting, Jim, you and I have talked about this, and, and it, you were sort of testing us there in the, the reading, because you kind of want to go into that doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer, right? And yet it's not in Scripture. And you think, huh. Now, as I mentioned last week, it's a perfectly good thing to say. It's true. And yet, we don't have it in there right now because we're trying to force ourselves to actually wrestle with what the text says. And so we go on that autopilot and we're trying to kind of reblaze the trail on us. And that's all the more important tonight as we're thinking about forgiveness because we have certain ideas in mind on what forgiveness looks like, what forgiveness should play out as, and it's very, very hard to break out of that. Harder than breaking out of saying things the way we've always said them. And, uh, you know, that's hard enough. The big one for me is I, I grew up in a church that always said debts and debtors. And I go to a church and I know that they're going to say trespasses, and I don't care how many times I read in the bulletin or, or on screen, we say trespasses here. I am still going to have a hard time getting out trespasses because debts just wants to come out. You know, it's just there. Because <clears throat> we're on autopilot. How do we break out of that when it comes to forgiveness? Because if you say trespasses, if you say debts, I'm not even going to spend a lot of time on that tonight because frankly, it doesn't really matter all that much. They're both getting at the heart of things. And both words are used in clearly in those verses. It would appear, if you are trying to get the straightest translation of the first part of the, of the, the prayer where it's dealing with forgiveness, it would appear to be debts. I, I think that is a better translation by a little bit. But then in verse 14, Jesus explicitly uses a word that needs to be translated trespasses. So Either way, we're getting at the heart of what Jesus is saying. And if you recall, we said that it's not about getting all the words right. But if it's that hard for us to, to get out of saying certain words, and it is for me, then how much harder is it to get out of acting certain ways with something that's as deep in us as forgiveness or lack thereof, of the hurts and the pains that we experience in life? Well, we need to start by understanding who we are. And... The answer to who we are is, it can vary quite a bit based on what we're talking about. I saw a survey that was conducted a couple years ago by our government. I don't know why they decided to measure this, but it was reported by, by YouGov, which is one of the official portals of the U.S. government, that the American populace is more convinced that we can take on and win a fight with a wild animal than the British people. So let's take a look at a few of these. I think that's kind of interesting. So most Britons and most Americans think we can take on a rat. How many of you think we can take on a rat? Mm, yeah, mm, I don't know. I'd rather not. Uh, now, I think the second one's unrealistic. 69% of Americans think they can take on a house cat. I mean, come on, they have claws. <laughs> My cat tells me what to do and you just go with it. I mean, come on. Uh, then you can see 61% of Americans believe they could take on a goose. Uh, only 45% of the British, though. We start to see more of a, a divergence there. And then medium-sized dog, it, it diverts even more. Eagle, 
I'm not sure if I even thought what would it be like to face an eagle that's coming down to attack me. But I, I know I wouldn't want to do it. Only 18% of British people think that they could take on an eagle. How many of you think you could take on an eagle? Okay, well, you know, maybe it's because the, the, we figure the eagle's going to be kind to us since the eagle is our state, our country's national bird, and so he wouldn't, you know, completely finish us off. I don't know. Now, where it gets really interesting, though, is the very bottom, if you look there, 6% of Americans think they could take on a grizzly bear. Only 2% are British. I would argue that by and large, as I look at this chart, I think the British are generally more accurate than Americans on the likelihood of a successful outcome of wrestling wild animals. If anyone wants to check that this week, I, um, I don't advise it. And Little Hills disclaims all damage involved. And here's why. Here's why I, I think this is a problem for us. It's that we are weaker than we think. We are weaker than we think. We think we're strong. And part of that autopilot I was talking about that we're on, we feel like we are on autopilot with having things like forgiveness down. I mean, I think if you ask most people, they would say that, I'm not going to make you show your hand on this one, but most people would probably say, I'm forgiving in the right way. I'm forgiving enough. And I can handle this. I've got this. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a basically good person. So I can, I can forgive enough to, to keep myself in that good person space. But here's where we need to understand where we are. We need to understand we're weaker and more broken than we, we think we are. That we need to remember how much God has forgiven us. And that's what we see as Jesus takes us into this portion of the Lord's Prayer, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive, we jump to verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? I thought we were talking grace here. Aren't you a church? But you're saying if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. That doesn't sound graceful. That doesn't sound like anything other than some legalistic, sour grapes, fundamentalist, mean-spirited religion. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus is talking about understanding who we are before God. Because remember, this is a prayer, and each part of this prayer is we're praying it or we pray in the model of it. Remember, we don't have to use the exact words. They're not magical words, but, but the, the content of it is what Jesus is saying should be in our prayers. We're praying both about receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness. And it reminds us that we need to be active in seeking to forgive in our present moment. The, the wording in, in Luke, Jesus shares a similar prayer. It's not perfectly identical. And, and so commentators think that probably more than likely, this was a sort of message that Jesus preached in different locations. Remember, they didn't have live streaming. They didn't have television. They didn't have MP3s you could download as a podcast on your favorite podcasting store. 
If you wanted to hear something, you need to actually go and hear the person say it. So Jesus presumably said many of the things we have recorded in the Gospels multiple times over the course of his ministry as he went to different places. And it's worded slightly different in Luke and and maybe a little bit more clearly. Because in, in Matthew, Matthew's written to a primarily Hebraic or Jewish audience. They're thinking in terms of the way that Hebrew works, even though it's written in Greek. So it's sort of, in other words, going to, if you were a second language person speaking English and you're writing to other people who share the same mother tongue, you might incorporate some of the the style of that tongue because you know even though it's in English, those other people would appreciate it, It'd feel like it was refreshing to them because, oh, this is this is the language, the style of the language that, that we grew up with. And that appears what, what's happening here when we look at the prayer in Matthew. It's written the way you would say it if you were saying it in Hebrew, even though it's in Greek. That sounds a little convoluted. But the, the, the bigger point is if you go over and look at Luke, it's written to a more Greek-speaking audience, which incidentally is a little bit easier for us to get our head around. They're thinking more like we think today oftentimes. And so Jesus makes it very clear what his point is here. He says that we should, be for, we should ask God for his forgiveness as we are in the act of forgiving others. Not, God, if I reach my forgiveness quota, will you forgive me? But God, would you forgive me as I'm seeking to forgive others? And I believe that's the heart of what Jesus is saying here. In other words, really what he's getting at is understand that as we come before God and ask him to forgive us, we need to be people that carry that forgiveness forward. We need to understand so clearly what debt we have to God, how imperfect we are in the eyes of a holy God. And yet we know that he loves us and that he has offered his forgiveness to us and we can receive that. That because of that, then that should remind us how we treat other people. Jesus addresses this later on in Matthew 18. It says in in verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment, and that payment to be made. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I don't know how many of you are up on current exchange rates for, for these different coins that are being referred to here, but, but here's the really big picture of this. The first servant owes such a debt that making the wage that he does as a servant, he will never have enough money to pay it off. When he says, I will pay back every cent, it's sort of like today if I owed a billion dollars to someone. And here I am as a pastor, and I say, don't worry. I will pay off every cent that I owe. Now, the person I owe would look at my income for about two seconds and say, you're never going to be able to pay that off unless you're going to play the Powerball every week and win, and I'm not willing to take those chances. You're not going to do it. And the, the master in this parable knew that just as clearly. The man was never going to be able to pay him back. It wasn't going to happen. So when he forgives the man his debt, he's not doing it because he's just being nice, even though the man could have paid him off in a couple of weeks. The man's never going to pay him off. But he forgives him. Now the second man, the, the servant who owed the, the fellow servant, he owed a much smaller sum, something he could reasonably pay off in a t- period of time that, that people would consider fair. And he pleads with the same language. Have patience with me. But that servant who had just been forgiven this debt that he could never pay back, what does he do? He shows no mercy to the one who owes much less. He doesn't understand where he's situated. He thinks he's living high on the hog. He's just been forgiven. He might as well be a billionaire because he just got forgiven this massive sum of money and now he's going to live high on the hog and he's going to cash in his debts so he can really, really live it up. He didn't realize where he was as someone who had been forgiven purely out of mercy. It reminds me I've talked a number of times over the years about my grandparents' house fire. And one of the things that I always come back to on it is that we love to go over there and celebrate Christmas multiple times during the, the holiday season. And if you know me, you know I'm never ready to quit celebrating Christmas. So, and they were the same. So we'd go over mid-January and have a, at least one more Christmas party. And so it was in 1998, we go over middle of January, it's freezing cold, perfect for Christmas celebrations. All the lights are on, the Christmas music's playing, my grandma always played Elvis on her record player, Elvis's Christmas albums, I'm, I'm sure that was playing that night. And we just had a wonderful time. I think we played some games. It was just a, a beautiful night, and yet we didn't understand where we were. Because hours later, their house would catch on fire it would basically total everything on the first floor. And more importantly, it would total them. They never really recovered mentally from it. We didn't know that night, this is it. This is, this is the last normal night we're going to spend together. But it was. And I think we always talk about hindsight being twenty twenty. If I know that something is coming that's a disaster, I'm going to act differently than if I don't know. And what Jesus is saying here is you need to understand what disaster was roaring towards you. And you say that you want my forgiveness. You say that you want to call me Lord. Well, if you want to call me Lord, I just want you to actually understand what I'm doing for you. Because if you actually understand what I'm doing for you, 
you're going to be trying to forgive. And the way he has it worded, I really believe that's what he's saying, trying to forgive. I don't want to say that people are going to be perfectly good at forgiving. And I should raise my hand right now as someone who is really bad sometimes at that. And sometimes I think I have it all under control. I've forgiven someone who's really hurt me. I've forgiven them. And then I run into an old email from them during the time we were fighting. Or I run into someone who knows both of us and they reference it. Or I just happen to be thinking back to a time in the past and all of a sudden all of that discord just comes roaring back as if it had never been gone for a single second. And if forgiveness is completely totally wiping away all sin for all time that we attribute to other people, never thinking about it like God does for us, then I am sunk. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. I believe what Jesus is saying here is that we need to realize where we're located. We're, we have a fire in the attic that's getting ready to roar down into our houses of life. And God can stop that. What he asks is for us to actually recognize what he's doing. And if we recognize the totality of God's forgiveness and the wonder of his forgiveness, then the least we could possibly do is say, God, help me to forgive other people. Who do I need God's help in forgiving right now? I wrote that question this week and I could immediately fill it in and I wish I couldn't, but I can. Maybe you can too. I'd encourage you to think about that. Who is it whose hurt towards you comes back time and again and again and again, even if they never do anything else? Who do I need to work on forgiving? Because the first thing we need to understand is that no one has ever done anything to us as bad as what we've done to God. Because he owes us nothing. We owe him complete love and devotion and service as the holy God. And all he asks is that we turn to him and trust him. Who do I need to who do I need God's help to work on forgiving? I really wish I could skip that question. I really, really wish I could skip that question because I don't like thinking about that question. And if I'm really completely transparent, there are some people I can think of that I don't want to forgive. It's not even that I'm trying. There are times where I really don't want to forgive and I come up with plenty of justification for why I don't want to forgive. Who do I need God's help to work on forgiving? Now, I want to say one thing before we move on to the rest of this prayer. Sometimes people do horrible things. Sometimes people sin gravely against us and have absolutely no intention of doing otherwise. They're going to keep doing it. And Jesus isn't saying by forgiving that we go back and we continue to be sinned against over and over again until we finally break. There are times that we seek to come to a point of forgiveness towards people and then move on to not have them in our lives anymore because it's not possible, because they're not willing. You seek to, to reach out to them and to reconcile, and instead of saying, I, I, I'm so thankful, it's bothered me so much that our relationship has been broken, I really want to make this better, help me to understand. 
they say, and who are you, oh, holy, almighty person that you think that you need to forgive me for anything? I don't have anything I need forgiven. And they go right back to doing what they've done before. Jesus says that we should seek to forgive people, but he also says there's time to shake the dust off our feet, to move on because people aren't going to receive us and they're not going to receive the kingdom of God. And, and so this isn't about putting up with abuse. It isn't about being torn apart. But it's about even if we can no longer relate to the person, we can no longer spend time with them because it's not safe, we seek not to have that lack of forgiveness eating away at us. That we, we seek to understand even in those moments that God has forgiven us all the more. So it's, a, it's, it's not about sometimes what we mean in our culture about forgiveness. Forgive and forget be nice, and sometimes that's appropriate. If you went and bought your coworkers lunch one day and you messed up the order, and 10 years later your one coworker is still reminding you, and it's not because it was so funny what you ordered for them, but because they're still actively upset about it, that's a problem. <laughs> We just need to have perspective. And if we're the person reminding the other person about the wrong order, even if, even, if there was, even if there was cause to be upset, and that's the sort of thing that we really should probably just let roll off our back. We really should. But even if it weren't, even if it were a little more serious and it actually is something that needs actual work on forgiveness between the two people, on those lesser things, may we actually seek to put them behind us and not bring them up and not allow them to come up and pray that God would remove them from, from our, our thoughts. But again, if, if, if it gets much more severe, you have someone who's abusive, you have someone who is unrepentant, has no desire for genuine reconciliation at all, we can seek to forgive and also be safe. I think that's something important to be said as we think about this. This is a lot about, primarily about even, our understanding of how we relate to God. And that's why it's so important for receiving God's forgiveness. Because if we can't forgive others, it means that we don't really think that we need much forgiveness ourselves. If we understand that we have been forgiven a debt that we could never repay, we, we owed billions of dollars and we were never going to make billions of dollars. I, I, I'm not going to have an IPO for some tech startup and make a billion dollars. I'm not going to. Someone has an idea and they want to license it to me, let me know. But, you know, generally speaking, that's not going to happen. And I realize what God has forgiven me. It changes how I relate to him. And that's what's important that we understand, that we truly understand that we need Jesus. And if we're praying actively, help me to forgive others as, as you're forgiving me, we're saying, God, where I don't yet understand how much I need to forgive other people, help me to. Where I understand but I can't do it, help me to. And that's where it really boils down to in verse 13, I believe. It is, we, we forget how much we need God's continued help. Know what Jesus says there, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Are these just unrelated things? I don't think so. And, and really wrestling with these verses over the last few weeks, I've become more convinced than ever that these are actually meant to go together. 
that when we pray that God would help us from temptation, what we're saying is, God, I know how much of a sinner I am. That's why I need to forgive other people. And also why I need your help to avoid sinning in the future because on my own, on my own devices, it's just going to end up vices. We need rescue from the evil one and his forces of evil because they're constantly coming at us. I don't mean that in some kind of weird, creepy, let's make a, a Christian science fiction movie kind of way. I mean in the real everyday life experience that all of us have. You don't have to see some kind of supernatural appearance of some demon to understand that evil is constantly assaulting us. Sometimes it's evil inside of us and sometimes it's evil outside of us. But it's constantly there coming at us. And the problem is too often we think we can handle it. I've got this. I can handle evil coming at me. But we need God's help to overcome it. When Jesus says to to help deliver us from temptation, people have argued over exactly what to do with those words. Is it temptation or testing? Because on the one hand, it seems odd. Why would we ask God, who is good and holy and true and perfect, all the things I've just been saying, why would we ask him not to lead us into temptation? Of course, anyone who's good wouldn't lead us into temptation, right? I mean, that would be sin. Scripture tells us God doesn't tempt us. He does test us. And so people have said, well, maybe we're praying not to be tempted. God, don't tempt me. I don't think that's the case either. Because testing, I'm sorry, testing, not tempting. Don't test me. Yeah, see, I'm there. I'm on autopilot again. Um, (laughs) Yeah, come up and get me afterwards. Whip me. Uh, I need some mortification of the flesh here. Yeah, see, it's so easy. Testing. Don't test me, God. But, but if testing, we're told, is a holy thing from God, God is purifying us through the testing he gives. When he tests Abraham, for example, he's preparing Abraham to fully, finally embrace his calling. That's what we see in testing. It doesn't really make sense to pray to God, don't let me be tested. It might pray, we might pray, as commentators have said, God, please help me to pass the test. Now we sound like students, right? Not a bad prayer. I think it is temptation, but it's temptation from the evil one, what we see in the next line. God, deliver us from evil. Now, depending on your Bible translation, it may say evil or the evil one. Practically speaking, I don't think it really matters how we translate it. Practically, it's the same either way. There are arguments to make it, to say that it would seem like translating it the evil one would make a little more sense. The way it's worded. And certainly it would make sense to pray that just as Jesus encountered temptation from Satan and resisted, that we ask God, Lord, would you help me to resist temptation from the evil one? That would make sense. But, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be just the evil one. And I think maybe that's why it's ambiguous here. Maybe Jesus intends us to think both in terms of evil and the evil one. Because it doesn't really matter if it's an evil person, if it's the evil in our own selves, the evil impulses I have in my own life, which I shouldn't overlook. It doesn't matter if it's Satan himself. Whatever it might be, I want God's help to resist it. 
I want to get past temptation. And the temptation referred to here, it would seem as referring to the same sort of temptation we see later, for example, in Galatians 6, when, when Paul's talking about temptation that would actually cause someone to fall away from the faith. Someone who is so tempted they walk away. In other words, what we're praying is, God, help me to remain firm in you. Help me to keep being one who understands where I am in this story, that I need you. Help me to understand what's pleasing to you and good for me and not just go running off the ways I want to. Doesn't mean it always happens instantaneously as much as it would be nice if it did. Romans 7, verse 19. Paul says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is putting into words there something I think most of us probably have experienced, which is we set out to do what is right and we go and we we think, I'm going to be nice to this person, I'm going to be nice to this person, I'm going to be nice to this person that rubs us the wrong way a little bit and we immediately walk in and we see that person and they make a snarky remark or something, and all of a sudden our tongue is just loosed and we're right back to where we started. <sighs> I said I was going to do better than that. Here's something better for us to do. When we see ourselves asking for forgiveness from God, then logically this next part is asking God to help us to have truly repentant hearts, hearts that want to be freed from the sins that we fall into, the, the evil that we do both to other people and to God. If we truly understand how messed up we are, if we truly understand how much God's already forgiven us, if we realize that we're that much of a spendthrift, that we've spent debt well beyond anything we could ever earn, then we might know that we're not really careful with money and that we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep struggling. And so what do we do? We ask someone to help us. God's going to provide that strength that we ask him to. Not immediately all the way. He works in our lives over time, but, but he offers strength to, to enable us to be those who are pleasing to him. Now, one of the things that this leads to is understanding I don't need to prove my quote-unquote holiness. I like when people think I'm righteous. When people say nice things about how I treat other people or do whatever, it's sort of like, oh yeah, yeah. don't say that, come on, keep saying it. You know, yeah. uh, keep, keep it coming, keep, come on. I think part of the reason it often feels awkward when people do that is that at least as I look at myself, I, I, I look in inside and I think that's not really true. You think I'm patient, I'm not really. I just sometimes suppress it. You think I'm thoughtful, sometimes it's purely I know what I need to do. It's not really where I want to be. And if I understand that, then I don't need to prove my holiness. I want to prove God's holiness. Because I know that I'm, I'm not going to measure up. I'm not going to be good enough, but God is. 
I think probably all of us have heard the phrase pulling oneself up by your own bootstraps. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we, we know that. Uh, today, probably the way we use it most is referring to computers. A computer that can start itself up is known, uh, it was known as pulling itself from, up from its own bootstraps or bootstrapping the computer. Now we talk about booting the computer, rebooting the computer. You know, reboot your phone if it's not working. So that's probably the way we use it most, but we also sometimes use it in political debates, for example. Well, people need to be better at pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. And what we really mean is you need to go take initiative on your own. What I didn't realize is that the original metaphor there was really talking about how absurd that really is if you think about it. Because it's not talking about putting your boots on. It's talking about lifting yourself up out of a pit. When, it, when you say pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, it's saying you're down in a pit. And, and tell me, do you think this is going to work? I, I reach down, I have some straps on my boots, and I go down and I start pulling up. Uh, uh. Am I going to get myself out of the pit by doing that? No. There's a really amusing story about a, uh, a German baron named Munchausen who, who allegedly, he had all these grand adventures he would always be fabricating to tell people. And he told people once he was stuck in a swamp and he pulled himself up by his own pigtail. And it lifted his horse too. So there you have it. Is that going to work any better than pulling myself up by my bootstraps? Ellie, do you think if you're stuck on a horse in a swamp that you can just pull yourself up by your, your hair and you're going to lift out of the swamp? No, no, that's not going to work. It's ridiculous, right? It doesn't actually work. And so when we say that, we mean something else today, but the original point was it's absurd to think that we can actually make things right in our lives. We think we can. We have an awful lot of confidence in ourselves and we feel better when we get to show that confidence to people. Bernard of Clairvaux said, I preached myself and the scholars came and praised me. I preached Christ and the sinners came and thanked me. I think that's really at the heart of it. Because what did he realize? He, he was respected. So he could preach about how great he was and all the insights he had. And, and people would say, wow, aren't you amazing, Bernard? We respect you so much. And, you know, centuries later, we still respect you so much. It's so amazing how brilliant you are. And he'd get lots of praise. But when he said, I'm a sinner who needs Jesus, then the people that actually understood how their plight was, they understood that the fire was coming down at them. They understood there was nothing they could do. They certainly weren't going to take a pigtail and pull themselves out of a swamp or bootstraps and pull themselves out of a pit. Those people could hear what he was saying and realize, wait, this is for me. I need this. When we know that, we're enabled to come to God and say, help me to forgive others because I can't do it. I can't forgive others and I couldn't ever get myself made right. But I need your help. And once I confess whatever I, I, I've sinned and done, I'm going to go and do the same stupid thing again. God help me. That's an appropriate prayer. I don't think we should pray. I believe that's encapsulated here in what Jesus is saying because God sends us into the world as forgiving forgivers. Those who are called to see who we are, that we are forgiven, and show forgiveness so that the world understands, wait, they get it. Wait, I know I'm messed up. I don't know what to do. I've gone and read all the self-help books. I've gone and sought wealth. I've gone and sought entertainment. I've gone and sought retreats into the most beautiful parts of the world and I still feel like disaster is upon me. 
I've done all that. I need you, God. May we all understand that tonight. We need him. Here's the wonderful thing when we understand that. We don't, sometimes we realize we need something and we can't have it. But God says, if you come before me and say, I'm messed up, I need forgiveness, I can't forgive people, I can't get things right, I'm, I fall to temptation. God, I need you, I need your help, and I want you to help me to be the person I was supposed to be. Guess what God's going to do? He's going to say, I'll do it because you're my child and I love you. Will you pray with me, please? Father, it's hard for us to, to say the things that we're talking about tonight. I, I know for me, I, I don't want to think that I struggle with forgiveness. I don't want to think that I struggle to do what is right. I want to think that when people say the nicest of things about me, that it's true and not the things that people say about me that are the worst. And yet, Lord, help me to recognize who I am before you, both before I come before you. I'm, I'm broken and sinful and I am hopeless on my own. Let me not stop there. Let me recognize who I am in you. That you offer me forgiveness. That you call me yours. That you invite me into your family. That you offer me your righteousness. That you call me to go and share this with the world that more people would know that you love them. Would you help me to do that this day? Would you help all of us to do that this day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.